0: So, it is Easter, and what better day to start with a little history lesson. Yay, history, all right? So, um, I want to take us back to the 1700s. Yeah. 1700s was known as the Enlightenment, and during the Enlightenment, that's when there were lots of advances in science, in philosophy, in reason, and lots of uh, new inventions were made, right? We, we really advanced scientifically. Some of the things that came out of the 1700s, a thing called the steam engine, right? The flush toilet. Praise God for that. Democracy, aspirin, blood transfusions. Imagine still using leeches. Right? They came up with, with, uh, with this new concept of, um, like, clean the knife before you do surgery. You know, at least wipe the blood off from the last guy. Right? So we got real smart um, during... The Enlightenment. Then we moved into the 1800s, where we became so scientifically advanced that we thought we could explain everything by science and natural causes. And out of that assumption came Darwinism. Right? Darwin came up with a proposal for the existence of man, how man got here purely by natural causes. Now, with all these advances going on within the church, Christendom started to struggle with, well, what do we do with the Bible? Those who embraced modernism, modernism being the idea that through science and reason, that's how we figure out truth, right? Those who embraced modernism and Darwinism said, you know what, we need to modernize Christianity to keep up with the modern world. So out of that assumption came what you would call modern or liberal Christianity, okay? The essence of liberal Christianity is this. The miraculous claims of the Bible, the pre-scientific claims are just myths and stories. But we know everything really happens through science and things have to be reasonable. So, pre-modern man may have needed stories like about snakes talking in the garden and animals lining up two by two to enter an ark and Red Seas parting and people walking on water. Those are all just stories and myths. And even this idea that Jesus, who was a man, is fully God and fully man, come on, he was a great moral teacher, maybe even a prophet, but he wasn't God. And the miraculous things that he did, including this whole resurrection from the dead, eh, we're not so sure it really happened. So... Liberal theology rejected the miracles of Jesus, but they wanted to, to still call themselves Christians, so they retained the ethics of Jesus. And the basic ethic is this. Um, love your neighbor. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right? So the result was a modernized, demythologized, more acceptable Christianity. Well, that was 1800s when that started to develop. Then in the 1900s, uh, early 1900s, a group of Christians reacted to these guys. This group was called the Fundamentalists. The Fundamentalists... um, said, wait a minute, the modernists are going too far and we are going to reaffirm the fundamentals of the faith. And they came up with several volumes, there's actually 12 volumes of books uh, called The Fundamentals, Fundamentals of the Faith, but five of them kind of became the dividing line between liberals and fundamentalists. Um, the, The first is they affirmed the inerrancy of Scripture, that there are no errors in Scripture, not just in faith matters, but in any claim that the Bible makes. The virgin birth of Christ, he really was born of a virgin. The substitutionary atonement of Christ, he really did die on the cross in our place to pay for our sin. The bodily resurrection of Christ, that what we sang about today really happened. Jesus really rose from the dead, and then the reality of the miracles of Christ. So, um, there would be the modernists, and then the fundamentalists, early 1900s. Now, you go, well, that's, that's good, I, I buy all that, I, I do too, right, but here's the problem: the fundamentalist started to to be known for being mean, right? Angry, mean, separatistic. We're going to separate not only from the world, but from other Christians who might not might not buy everything we buy, and then separate from those, and then separate. The, so there's only one guy left, right? Um, they became known as the fighting fundamentalists, right? We are right. right? So then as the nineteen hundreds, but oh by the way, um, y'all right here may not know this. You know who wrote the who who edited the fundamentals? R. A. Tory. Second president of Moody Bible Institute, and that's where you meet in chapel. All right? All right. So, um, R.A. Tory was a fundamentalist. Right? So, um, as this battle raged, there emerged in the 1900s a, uh, a group that said, you know what? Um, let's retain the fundamentals of the faith, but let's not be so nasty, right? So a group emerged called the evangelicals. Evangelicals are those who hold to inerrancy, and the miraculous miracles of the Bible, and there's a heaven, and there's a hell, and Jesus really rose from the dead, and you need to be born again. But let's also display the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, okay? Let's, <laughs> let's not be jerks, okay? Um, now, here, here kind of became the dividing line. How do you tell a fundamentalist from an evangelical, and it was your view of this guy, That's Billy Graham. Some of you are like, who's that? That's Billy Graham. If you were for Billy Graham, you were an evangelical. If you thought he was a compromiser, uh, you were a fundamentalist. Okay? And some of you say, I don't know who that is. And others of you go, I thought he was a pretty fire and brimstone guy. No, no. He was the nice guy. Okay? Now, here we are a hundred years later. And there are millions of people who were raised in evangelicalism okay who are abandoning evangelical christianity some of them are calling themselves ex evangelicals disassociating themselves from the evangelical church now Some of them, in their disassociation, are becoming atheists. They're just abandoning any belief in God. But many are settling for what would be known as progressive Christianity. Progressive Christians are former evangelicals who don't buy everything the Bible has to say, or they're reinterpreting it. But they also want to maintain a Christian ethic, love your neighbor, Okay, and and the big emphasis would be get involved in justice issues, whether the issue of heaven and hell and preaching the gospel, uh, saving people's souls. That kind of uh, some of them believe that that should still be done, but the real emphasis is social issues. Okay, now this is um, Elisa Childers. Um, some of you, do any of you remember a band called Zoe Girl? Yeah, she's, she was with Zoe Girl. Now she's a, a grown-up and a mom. And um, she has a blog and has written books. And she got caught up in progressive Christianity. And then she said, whoa, wait a minute. Um, I don't buy where this is heading. And now she defends, let's call it evangelical truth. Okay. She wrote this, the difference between emergent Christianity, so progressives used to call themselves emergents, now they're called progressives. She says the difference between emergent Christianity and progressive Christianity is location. While the emergents were on the fringes of Christian culture, the progressives now seem to be driving it. In other words, what she's saying is, if you're sitting here this morning saying, who cares about these people? Your kids are being exposed to this. And it's driving evangelical Christianity now. OK? So you've got you to know about this, right? With progressive Christian leaders penning best-selling books, garnering millions of followers on social media platforms and producing podcasts that are regularly found on the top. 10 of iTunes' religion and spirituality categories. Their influence is incalculable. Okay? So, like it or not, that's where the church is marching today. You go, well, what does it matter? Well, let me give you just an example of why this matters. Um, uh, Alyssa Childers talks about a progressive children's pastor giving this advice about how to talk to your kids about Easter. The point of the Easter story, so this is the progressive children's pastor, the point of the Easter story isn't whether or not Jesus literally rose from the dead. We're missing the point if we're fighting over the historical accuracy of a bodily resurrection. Stories don't have to be factual to speak truth. Right? So whether he rose from the dead or not, I mean, come on, you know. We can, we can gain truth out of myths. Well, what's, what's the truth we should get? I guess the sun will come out tomorrow. Life is full of do-overs. I, I mean, I, I don't know what the message is, okay. So that's kind of the historical place we find ourselves today. Now, Let me go back 2,000 years ago where the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a church he founded in Corinth, Greece. There were those in the Corinthian church who were also kind of progressive. They were saying, yeah, we're Christians. We want to follow Jesus, but we're not so sure we buy this whole thing where Christians who die will rise from the dead. This whole resurrection of dead people thing, come on, that's a little bit too much to buy. So I'm gonna have you look at your, your bulletin and there's the first part of 1 Corinthians 15 and the second part. Let's hit, hit the second part first, okay? In um, verse 12, he says, now if, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So there were those, even in the first century, who said, hey, we can buy a lot of this. But this crazy talk about life after death and dead people rising in heaven and hell and all that. Come on, that's too much. So Paul is saying, some of you are saying there's no resurrection of the dead. They, they weren't buying it. It wasn't progressive enough. Now, what he's going to do here is he's in the, this paragraph, he's going to give six, six devastating results of denying a future resurrection, okay? So the first devastating result in verse 13 is this. If if future resurrection is denied, then categorically Christ's resurrection needs to be denied. But if there's no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. So categorically, if we're getting rid of that crazy resurrection talk, then Jesus has not been raised. And if that's true, your faith is futile. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. What are you doing here on Sunday morning? You should be out golfing like a smart person wasting your time in church singing about a dead man raised from the grave, right? Then not only that, we apostles who preach this crazy message, we've been lying to you. We are even found to be misrepresenting. That's a nice way of saying liar, liar, pants on fire. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. Right? We're a bunch of liars. Right? Then it gets even worse. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now, isn't that interesting? Because... Progressives, liberals, Corinthians, they want to maintain some moral aspect of Christianity. But the problem is, everybody fails morally. But if Christ hasn't been raised, then you're stuck in your sins. Have you thought it through, Corinthians? So you're going to hell. Well, we're not sure we believe in hell. then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Paul's saying, Grandma, who just died, she's perished. Because if Christ hasn't raised, he didn't forgive her sins, and she's toast. But then he says, silly Corinthians, if in Christ we have hope only of all people most to be pitied we're a we're a pathetic bunch of people who gather and sing songs about a dead guy talk about heaven what a pathetic bunch we are right in fact later in this chapter he goes on and he says this here's the logical conclusion if christianity isn't true if the dead are not raised let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die smartest thing you can do is go to the bar What are you doing? Wasting your life following Christ, being moral? Eat, drink for tomorrow? We die. See, Scripture affirms that if, if this isn't true, just live for yourself. Okay? Now, the good news is, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have falling asleep now let me ask you this if you believe that are you living different from the world who just lives for eating and drinking and watching tv okay now his whole argument is it matters we can't just say well the bible it's got full of myths full of stories but we like the morality of it no paul says that's stupid thinking get rid of that now here's the question how do we know Jesus really rose from the dead? Well, he's covered that in the first paragraph. So let's take a look at the first paragraph. All right. And what he's going to do is he's going to call four witnesses to the stand. To witness to the fact that Jesus really rose from the dead. So it begins this way. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. So I'm going to remind you of the gospel that I already preached it to you and you believed it. Remember, y'all got baptized and y'all placed your faith in Jesus. So let me remind you of the gospel. And then he says, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, understand what he's saying here. It's possible some of you believed in vain. That you thought you were placing your faith in Christ. He's not saying that you can lose your salvation. He's saying some of you had a false belief to begin with and you're running after heresy, which shows it wasn't real, it was all in vain. If you truly believe, you will persevere in your faith to the end. But the fact that some of you are following these crazy people. Who want to follow Christ but deny the resurrection. That shows me maybe you're not true believers to begin with. Right? I'm always nervous about Christians who are, are just hopping on the latest trend. This trend and that trend. And, and it, it makes you wonder how solidly grounded are they in the gospel. Alright. So now, what he's going to do is he's going to call forth four witnesses. Now, the first set of witnesses are what we'll call prophetic witnesses. What do I mean by that? Old Testament witnesses. The Old Testament was written and completed at least 400 years before the birth of Christ. So this whole thing called Christianity of a Messiah coming and dying and rising from the grave, this isn't a brand new thing. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. So Paul says this, for I delivered to you as of first importance, and that tells me that there are things in Christianity that have priority. There are top rung issues and there are bottom rung issues. And you just want to make sure that you as a Christian are not a bottom-rung person who's going around dividing churches and splitting up over second-tier issues, third-tier issues. But there are first-tier issues. So I, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. You know, we, ch- we changed the lyrics, but there's a group of people who wanted to change those lyrics about the wrath of God being satisfied. They don't want to sing that, so they say the love of God was magnified. Because talking about Jesus dying for our sins and the wrath of God, that's not a nice God, all right? Um, but he says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures what's he talking about? Well, there are specific prophecies about a Messiah coming and dying in our place. For example, Isaiah 53, but he was pierced. So this was written 600 years before the birth of Christ. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We like sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You say, that sounds like a New Testament verse. Yeah, doesn't it? It was written 600 years by Isaiah Before Jesus was even born. So there are specific prophecies that witness to uh, what Jesus is going to do. But then there's just the whole storyline of the Old Testament. That God chooses a people. And in the middle of that people he says build a temple. And there'll be a priesthood whose job is for people when they sin to bring they bring a lamb to the priest and they slaughter the lamb and the blood is sprinkled on the altar and that substitute that lamb forgives their sins and we learn that all that was a big picture pointing to the coming of the Messiah, the Lamb of God. So Paul says uh, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is in flow with the whole of the Old Testament. Okay? He goes on under that same category to say that he was buried, Jesus was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, I have a question for you. Where do we get the idea from the Old Testament that Jesus would be raised on the third day? Where's that three come from? Now, Jesus himself, he said, you know, I'm going to be like Jonah, who was in the belly of the whale, belly of the fish, sorry, belly of the fish for three days. I'll be in the belly of the earth for three days, so Jesus points to Jonah, but but that is more of a uh, an analogy. I'm like that. Is that was Jonah really a prophecy? Well, it's interesting. Both both um, Peter on the day of Pentecost and Paul in his evangelistic preaching quote from Psalm. 1610 as a justification for Jesus rising from the dead and David writes this so David's writing Psalm 16 verse 10 David says to God for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol okay so that, that, that means God will not abandon him to the grave forever he will rescue David right or let your Holy One see corruption. Some translations say decay. The Holy One, the Messiah, he's going to die, but he won't see decay or corruption. There was this idea. That the body starts to decay on the fourth day. Do you remember when Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus? And it says he's been there for four days. King James says, so his body stinketh. Right? Because it's the fourth day, the body is starting to decay. Here, David says, the Holy One, his body will not decay or seek corruption, I think Paul and Peter thought that that says he must rise on the third day, according to the scriptures, okay? So, first set of witnesses, Old Testament prophecies. Next set of witnesses, martyrs, martyred witnesses who are willing to die for their belief in Jesus. And who who are these martyred witnesses? Well, when Paul wrote this, they weren't martyred yet. But it says, and that he appeared to Cephas. Who's Cephas? It's Peter, okay. Then to the twelve. So, Paul says this death and resurrection, it's all according to the scriptures. And then when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to Peter and the twelve. Okay. We know that the apostles went on to die for their belief in Jesus' death and resurrection, okay? Now, um, the argument is not they died for Jesus, therefore what they believed must be true. Because if dying for something makes it true, then the 9-11 martyrs who's, who flew their airplanes into the towers... Their belief must be true. And every crazy person who who dies for something, whatever they believe must be true. So the argument is not they were martyred, therefore it must be true. Here's the argument something turned cowards into martyrs overnight. Remember when Jesus was arrested? They all fled. And a little girl comes up to Peter and goes, Peter, you're one of his. And he goes, I don't know him. Three times. And then cock-a-doodle-doo. But then, all of a sudden, Peter's preaching on Pentecost. He's unafraid. And they all are willing to die. How do you explain this? They were willing to die because they saw Jesus alive. They weren't dying for a lie. They were dying for the truth. So his second group of witnesses that he, that he calls are martyred witnesses. Right? Third group that he calls are living witnesses. So Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he says this. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. When he's writing, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Some have died. Okay? Now, what is the point here? Paul's saying, if you don't believe me, there's 500 witnesses. Ask them. You see, the events, as reported in the gospels surrounding the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, are presented as real facts embedded in real history that could either be really denied or affirmed by real living witnesses who are still alive. You say, what, what facts? Well, you know, the gospel could have said uh, God sent his son to earth on an isolated island and there he gave his life and rose and we would have no idea whether it really happened but what does God do he sends his son and he grows up he's born in Bethlehem and he grows up in Nazareth and then he travels all over Israel and then he enters into Jerusalem the capital city on a Palm Sunday and he is Arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. Um, the head, his name is Caiaphas. His father-in-law, Annas, is really the brains behind the operation. And Jesus stands trial before the Supreme Court, so to speak. And then he's brought before Governor Pontius Pilate. And then Pilate wants to rid him, uh, rid, wash his hands, so he sends him over to King Herod. And Herod puts him on trial. And then Pilate sentences him to death. And he is carrying a cross and he falls and he can't can't go on. So they, they grab a guy named Simon. Where is he from? He's from Cyrene. And he carries the cross and Jesus is crucified and his body is put in a tomb. Where? We don't know. Oh yeah, it was in a guy by the name of Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. You see, this isn't the stuff that myths are made of. This is real history that could be denied because it's just, it's, it's in the middle of, of deniable things that, that if it didn't happen, we could just say that's all crazy. Paul says it really happened. There's 500 witnesses. There's 12 apostles. Ask us. All right? So... Um, there's living witnesses. Now, last thing, there's converted witnesses, all right? Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. James, who's James? James is one of Jesus' four brothers. Yeah, scripture names Jesus' four brothers. He wrote the book of James. He became the, uh, the leader of the Jerusalem church, Now, what's interesting about James and Jesus' brothers is this. His brothers in the Gospels, before Jesus dies, they don't believe in Jesus. They say of him, he's out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. His brothers said that. John 7, 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. But then, guess what? After Christ's ascension into heaven... Where do we find James and the apostles and his brothers? They all join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, last, mass, last mention of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They're believers now. Why are they believers? Because Jesus made a special little trip after his resurrection to his Brother James. I would have uh, have loved to have been there, right? Because James didn't believe in him. James knew Jesus was crucified, and now Jesus says, hello, James. I told you so. I don't think he said that, but um, James is a convert. And then there's one last convert, last of all. As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Who's the me? The Apostle Paul, who formerly was Saul of Tarsus. Saul, who was behind the killing of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Saul, who was on his way to Damascus to arrest and persecute and possibly kill more Christians. But then when Saul ends up in Damascus, what's he do? He starts preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. How do you explain the conversion of this radical Antichrist? Jesus appeared to Saul, Paul, on the road to Damascus. He presents himself as the final witness who saw jesus alive so what is 1 corinthians 15 all about you can't you can't say there's no resurrection if there's no resurrection then not even christ rose and if christ didn't rise then your faith is futile we're a bunch of fools we should be in bed right now but he did rise The Old Testament testifies to it. Martyred people testify to it. Living witnesses who were alive when Paul wrote this testify to it. And converted, radically converted people testify to it. Do you believe? I I hope you're not one who says, well, I'm a man of science. I'm a man of science. You're not going to believe this. I have a computer in my pocket that's got more megabytes than all of NASA in the first moon launch. I think science is really cool. I also think there's a God who created this world. And those Christians in that cemetery behind you there, the Christians will rise from the dead. They'll be given new bodies. How do we know that? Because Jesus rose from the dead. The first fruits from the dead. Have you trusted him as your Lord and Savior? Let's pray. Lord, we believe, we believe that you are God and you, according to the scriptures, came to this earth. You were born of a virgin. You walked on water. You fed the multitudes. You healed the sick. You were crucified under Pontius Pilate. You suffered. You died. You were buried. And that suffering was on our behalf to pay for our sins. And you rose from the dead And your resurrection affirms that everything you claimed and everything written about you is true. So we, 2,000 years later, can place our faith and trust in you. And be assured that we are forgiven, that we are adopted into your kingdom, and we will spend eternity with you. We praise you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. We gotta sing.